Okay, if, uh, if you guys can find your seats, we're going to go ahead and get started. So tonight, we, we have an awesome side journey that we're going to take together. We have been in the book of Exodus for quite a long time, and we are actually going to take a step away from Exodus tonight to go a different direction for one night. And it's actually really encouraging to hear the, the collective, oh, you know, because we're, we're really enjoying that. No, please come back um, next week if you want to get back into Exodus, Exodus 32, the golden calf, big story. Uh, Mark's going to do an amazing job teaching through it. So tonight we have an opportunity to, uh, to go a different road and to talk about something uh, different, something that I have uh, had the privilege of being a part of this church really to, to lead and to guide. Um, we have an opportunity to... Um, to first, I think, examine how many of you guys are in this room uh, that are control freaks, like self-proclaimed control freaks. You're not even afraid. There's, I see some hands going like this, and then a lot of hands going like this, like trying to get their spouse's hands up there. So there you go. We got some proud ones over here. There you go. Um, so begin by thinking about this. What are situations, just, just think about this amongst yourselves, what are situations in your life in which you have, you feel like you've lost control? Like opportunities in life, uh, situations, instances, events, happenings, when you've been in a situation and all of a sudden you recognize that I have uh, loosened my grip on the ability to like orchestrate what's going on here. I've lost my control um, over this situation. I thought it would be fun to look at a couple of pictures of situations where control seems to either be completely gone or uh, slipping away from somebody's fingers as we see it. So the first picture, Andrew, if you can put it up, is this. Uh, now, this is, uh, if you're like me, you get itchy looking at pictures like this, just having that many people in close quarters. This is actually the Starbucks on Fifth Street's line in the morning. This is their, uh, their parking lot. Their parking lot's about as big as that screen, by the way, so it's, it's pretty fitting. Uh, next one is this. Some of you guys feel like you've been caught in this, uh, in this scenario before. Some of you guys have that white van at the bottom, I think, and you've, you've been thankful that at least you've been trapped in a pretty awesome van like that. Uh, traffic jam, you're not going anywhere. There's no way that you can change that situation, unless you're like some of these people and are just going to get out and walk away from your cars. I guess you can do something about it then. Uh, next picture is this. How many of you guys remember uh, what it felt like to celebrate this? Yes, uh, Mr. David Freeze. Uh, of course, there will always be another year for the Cardinals. Um, ultimate celebration, ultimate like chaos ensues when um, not just bad things happen, but when really good things happen, and all of a sudden the whole place erupts and nobody can just contain themselves. I mean, David Freeze is throwing his helmet off. We are all going crazy. Everybody's wanting to throw their TV. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Uh, Albert Pujols nor David Freeze are on the team anymore, so my picture's a little outdated. Uh, but next picture, we'll move on, is this. Uh, this is like, I tried to figure out a situation where a guy was walking away from a girl or vice versa in a fight, and this is clearly a stock photo. Um, I am not even sure that it's believable that they're really a couple, but they're in an argument somehow, and he's trying to lay his case, and she just put up the hand like, she's about ready to put her hand inside his mouth and say, be quiet. Uh, this guy literally has no control over, you know, what happens here. It's, he's at her mercy, I think, at this point. Next picture. Uh, this is a 16-year-old girl. 
some of you have been there uh, driving with your children. Some of us are still there when a, a favorite coworker drives to staff meetings sometimes. Um, now, you've, you can literally sense it in this guy's head. Like, I, I feel my entire um, ability to protect my daughter is going out the window right now. And so uh, you can feel that with him. Uh, last slide is this. Now, just to encourage you, this is a, a staged photo. This person really isn't dying. And then somehow somebody like swam alongside them and like got a picture like on the way down. Um, no, I, I did a Google image search for um, like imminent death kind of things. Like, like this is, you know, what I picture it would look like to be in a drowning situation. When you're at a point where you recognize that there's no way I'm going to be able to make it up there. There's, I can kick, I can fight, I can push, I can scratch, I can do all that I can do. And no matter what I try to do, I'm not going to be able to uh, regain control over this situation. Uh, I also thought about putting up the uh, Nirvana uh, Nevermind album cover, but somebody told me that was maybe inappropriate, something about babies and no clothes or something. So we'll stay with this one for now. Um, here's the deal. Tonight is all about control. In so many words, control is such an issue that um, is near and dear to all of us. If, if you're not a control freak, you assume that you basically have control over your life in some ways often. Um, who has control? What do you do with what little control you actually have over your life? And what, all, uh, what does all of this have to do with discipleship? Now, I was brought on this church four years ago on staff to implement this thing to say that we, we want to make disciples at this church, but we want to do it in a very um, upfront, a very direct way, but we don't know how to do it. So, uh, so they brought me on. We're, we're still learning, I feel like, in a lot of ways, but we've committed ourselves to fight a good fight. And uh, so tonight, the theme is discipleship. The teaching is still um, expository. We're still going to go verse by verse, but uh, my friends, we are going to go through one of my absolute passages in all of scriptures, and I'm sure uh, some of you guys is, as well. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. If you can turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, uh, the second book of the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Most people believe that Mark's Gospel was probably the first that was written, the first that was sent around. This is really the earliest story that was spread about Jesus uh, after his crucifixion and resurrection. Mark is probably a very close uh, friend, maybe somebody who was converted through Peter's ministry. Uh, largely, these are Peter's words, his sermons, his teachings that Mark is putting there in, the, in his gospel that he's spreading around. Um, interesting to note, probably at this point, the apostle Peter has probably already died uh, when this has gone out, uh, just to add some historical kind of significance to this. We are going to be in a passage tonight that literally is, I mean, it's the hinge of this entire gospel. You have this whole journey uh, leading into what this gospel is about, and it's asking two uh, basic questions. Who do you see yourself to be, and who do you see God to be? And here in Mark 8, um, Mark gives a pretty good uh, answer to that question. So Mark 8, we're going to go verses 27 through uh, 38 when it's all said and done. But starting at verse 27, it says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So you picture Jesus walking 
on this way, going from north to south, heading uh, into Caesarea Philippi, and he's asking them this question, who do people say that I am? I wonder if any question that Jesus asked of his disciples was, was a genuine question, as if Jesus didn't know what people were saying about him. I think he's beginning to invite his disciples into this discovery, into this experience where they're going to learn more and more who he says he has to be. In verse 28, he says, and then they told him, this is their answer, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets, which is pretty interesting because John the Baptist has been beheaded so far at this point. So uh, if he's John the Baptist, then he's a resurrected John the Baptist who is still going to proclaim the Messiah, the promised Christ that is to come. If he's Elijah, then people are thinking that he's the last great prophet who's going to come back uh, in the end times, that he's going to come back and revisit what God is doing in this place. And others say that he's one of the prophets. Jesus certainly was a prophet. Uh, Jesus would have been uh, everything and more that these men were, um, but they couldn't come close. They couldn't hold a candle to what Jesus is going to say soon that, um, that he's about, that he's going to do. And in verse 29, he asked them the all-critical question, but who do you say that I am? Now, by this point in time, Jesus and his disciples have been together for at least a couple of months, maybe a year. And I'll promise you this, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that a human being is actually going to answer this question correctly. So far in Mark's Gospel, Mark himself has introduced the Gospel by saying that Jesus is the Son of God. A voice from heaven, presumably God says that Jesus uh, is his son. Even a demon says uh, Jesus is right title, but a human being has yet to say it. Jesus asks this special question to uh, them, and Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, to catch many of you up that assume that Christ is Jesus' last name, I want to encourage you by saying that it's not. Uh, Jesus' last name is not Christ. Um, the word Christ is a huge, big, loaded word. It has a whole lot of things packed up into it. It, it began to be a very uh, shared term after David uh, stepped down, after he uh, uh, was away from his kingship, after he passed away, because in 2 Samuel 7 and onward, God uh, promised a king. He promised a Messiah. He promised uh, an anointed one that would come one day to... Um, to be the last great king, and he would extend David's throne for forever. So he was going to lead a kingdom that would never end. And he would do that by leading with justice, by making wrongs right, and, and by protecting the defenseless, the widows, the orphans, the fatherless. They had been waiting for this Christ figure to come for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So the Christ is the king. If you're going to be the Christ, then you're going to be the fulfilled messianic king. And so Peter, when he steps up and says, you are the Christ, in effect, he's saying, you're the true king. I want to encourage you as you just go on in your own Bible reading in, in years to come, every time you see Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, replace that with King Jesus and see what that does to, to what you're reading. So Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ in verse 30. And he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one about him. Now, why did Jesus tell, no, uh, tell Peter to say, uh, to, to keep the secret? Why did he want him to not go spreading the word? Go, you know, tell it on the mountain. Don't do that yet, Peter. Um, you said the right answer, but keep it quiet for a little bit. Well, if 
Jesus is the Christ, if Jesus is the true king, if he's the one who's really in charge, if all of his followers are running around proclaiming that Jesus is the true king, then that means that Caesar isn't. That means that the Roman emperor who's currently in charge, that, that is overseeing Jerusalem through the governors and such, that, that he's actually not the true king. So if this band of disciples is going to run around saying that we found the true king, then that's going to lead to a rebellion that's going to lead to um, some things happening much more soon than Jesus intends to. I promise you, and he leads his disciples to believe that eventually one day he will face a throne, but it will be a very different kind of throne than what they expect. He will begin his reign by dying. Jesus himself is um, very patient with his disciples. I want to begin by asking one question. Um, There are four total that I want to raise tonight, but the first one is this. Um, Who are you saying that Jesus is right now? Many of us in this room have very intricate, very awesome laid out testimonies of how the Lord revealed himself to us first. In the first hours that we believed, this is how we knew Jesus to be who he was. This is what we knew him uh, to be. But I even wonder how much our fellowship and our encouragement, our time together would be seasoned if we just walked up to one another and said, who do you believe Jesus is right now? How many of our problems would that give us perspective on? How much of our faithfulness would come back on the surface? How much would that guard us from being ashamed for all the ways that that we live like we don't believe that? Who are you saying Jesus is right now? Your view of who the Messiah is, your Christology, your understanding of what the Christ is will absolutely affect your discipleship. And when I say discipleship, I mean this act of of following Jesus, of being his student, of being one who desires to follow in his footsteps to become like him. So if your view of Jesus is off, then your discipleship will be off. Jesus continues on. Peter, after he says the right answer, Jesus began to say uh, in verse 31, and he began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Do you ever wonder why suffering had to be the way? I mean, you read this through the Gospels. There are different times when when it seems like to Jesus, it's blatantly obvious that this is the way that it has to be. This is the only way it has to be. He couldn't come in with a bazooka and smoke the Romans and, and just take care of it that way. He, he would have to go through and suffer, not just suffering at the hands of the Romans, but suffering at the hands of his own people. There are many, many, many possibilities that lurk right here, but I will say this. I, I absolutely believe at least this one thing, that Jesus had to come submit himself to, if you're reading who these people are, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These, these are the religious leaders of Abraham's family that God set out to deal with sin in Genesis. Jesus is saying that the best of the best, who are supposed to represent the best of God and the best of humanity, that the Son of Man must suffer at their hands. And I believe that he has to suffer at their hands because he has to see humanity become at its absolute worst in order to defeat it in order to do away with sin and death, in order to expose and expel the disease of sin from mankind. So it is necessary, he said, that the Son of Man, that the Christ must suffer many things 
And verse 32 says, and he said this plainly. He's very clear about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This word rebuke right here, this very specific word is only used when somebody is rebuking the evilest of the evil of forces. The devil himself, demons. So Peter, hearing Jesus say this, begins to rebuke Jesus. Begins to talk to Jesus like he's the devil. And then, in verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, probably noticing that they're all maybe nodding in agreement with Peter, he rebuked Peter, Jesus did, and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I don't think Peter wants what Jesus is saying he has to do. Not at first. I don't think he wants the one who's claiming to be the king to have to go through all of this, to have to suffer the scorn, the shame, the suffering, this ridicule. And in some ways, I think, because if, if the king has to go that way, you know, the people are always supposed to look like the king. The king represents the people. So if we're going to follow the king and the king is going to go somewhere we don't want to go, then we are going to try to change his course of action to protect our life, to, to keep things the way that it is. Second question I want to ask you is this. What does your discipleship reveal about who you believe Jesus is? Take a snapshot. Just right now in this season of life. Your ability to pursue Christ, to follow him, to grow in the knowledge of who he is, to, to show love, to live out a life of love, being a living witness, a living sacrifice in his name. Your ability to follow Christ and the story that that tells, tells the story of the Jesus that you expect right now, the Jesus that maybe you want. I am very convicted in this category because as much as we read through the scriptures that Jesus is saying over and over again, my way is narrow, it is hard, it involves self, uh, laying yourself down for the sake of your brother, it involves being willing to take on you know, this ridicule, the, the shame, the, the, it's not the glory train that we all want Jesus to be. Now, not to confuse time, it's eventually going to lead to glory, but not yet. If Jesus were to skip the shame to go for the glory, then we would be absolutely without hope. But Jesus is saying, this is what I need to do. I suggest to you this, that up to this point in Mark's gospel, that Jesus has been um, living amongst his disciples, he's been beckoning them to observe his miracles, to listen to his teachings, to watch him among the people. And it's at this point that he begins to reveal that they need precisely every bit of who he is to die for them. That's how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to be overthrown. This this is how evil, how the enemy of God, the ultimate darkness that doesn't belong in God's good creation, this is how it is going to be dealt with. This is how I will be your king. What does your discipleship reveal about who you believe Jesus is? It's not a hopeless question. I think it actually, it actually enables us to be able to call a spade a spade and say, I really want a Jesus that, that doesn't make me have to let go of things that I care about. Or I really want to go the way of Christ as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable or make me sacrifice things that I really enjoy. 
I think we're all in this boat together where, where we have to continually put ourselves back at the feet of Jesus to look at him for who he is, to discern who he is from the gospels and say, God, conform me to that Jesus. Help me to follow that Jesus. Help my life to look like the path of that Jesus. And then in verse 34, this is no doubt the, the definitive verse on the cost of discipleship. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is very clear about it. He turned away from the disciples to speak louder to get the multitude to come over. It's gracious. If anyone, anybody can join in this, anybody can follow me, let me just tell you what it entails. If anyone would come after me, let him first deny himself. So what does it mean to deny yourself? And just observing people for however many years I've been around Christians in ministry and in the church, I have heard and witnessed a whole lot of people say things that pretty much imply that in order to um, deny yourself, that it involves some form of, um, of losing who God has made you to be in his image, that you lose your humanity in that. Or maybe I don't, I don't hear people say this as much, but I observe people all the time who, not by their words, but by their actions and their attitudes toward themselves, they hate themselves. In, in giving this gracious invitation and saying that if we want to follow Jesus, that we have to deny ourselves, is Jesus saying that, that we have to hate ourselves? Because in John 16 too, Jesus tells his disciples the time is coming when, when men will kill you and think that they're doing so in service to God. I think we have to turn that back around on ourselves too and recognize that maybe we're doing some things to ourselves sometimes that God is never asking us to do. That we're seeing ourselves in ways that he never sees us. That we're walking with our heads down assuming that we don't deserve to be who we are and, and our plight is worse than it could ever be when, when in fact the Lord actually cherishes us. Going back to Exodus, he calls us to be a part of his holy people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So no, deny yourself, I do not believe, is self-abasement, is self-hatred. And it doesn't involve the loss, it doesn't, it doesn't involve becoming any less human. Brothers and sisters, I, I believe that denying yourself means to let go, to give up control of a self-generated, a self-perceived to be in control of my own life to give that up, to give the keys, to give the reins, to give everything back into God's loving hands. To deny myself means, means to deny the way that I would govern my own life, means to deny that I'm the author and creator and perfecter of my life. To deny myself means that I believe that another one actually deserves control over my life, that I came from elsewhere, that he is actually the one who owns my life. To deny ourselves, I believe, is to step forward and give up control. And I'm just going to give you a preview. I mean, I've been chewing on this passage for like three weeks. And where this has led me every day is literally coming back to say a prayer, God, help me to give up control. 
You wouldn't imagine saying that 20, 30 times a day, what that actually does to change your life and your perspective. All the ways that when you first believed in those first few moments, you knew that the Lord somehow had everything figured out and somehow had allowed you to be a part of his plan. He, he had it all taken care of and, and somehow as time goes on, we become way too good at forgetting that. That remembering that he's the one who still holds the reins. He is still guiding us. So if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, give up control, and take up his cross and follow me. Now what does it mean to carry our cross? To give credit where credit's due, much of what I've come to believe about biblical discipleship has been learned from a German man, a seminary professor that I had named Hans Beyer, and he taught me much of what I am blessed to be able to share with you, seasoned with much of my own thoughts and much of my own direction. In historical settings, to carry your cross implied crucifixion. And crucifixion was a Persian creation that was borrowed by the Romans and adopted as a form of punishment and execution that sought to humiliate and shame anyone who tried to defy the great and mighty Roman Empire, who, who dared stand up against the ironical Pax Romana. So, a horizontal, a vertical beam was set in the ground. I believe that Jesus is saying to you and to me to put ourselves in the place of one who walks to his death. So, the sentence has just come down. I have been found guilty. You have been found guilty. We are guilty as charged. It, it boils up regret in my life because I'm, I'm wishing that I would have backed away before I did this great thing that I was convicted of. Clearly in my mind is the judgment of God. The fact that as a disciple, I deserve <clears throat> this journey to my death. We begin in the city, in the middle of the crowd. And as we begin to walk with our patibulum, as this is called, this horizontal patibulum, as we begin to walk through the city, many, many, many people come out. And they don't come out to show pity on you or I. They come out to humiliate us. They come out to put us in our place, to throw insults at us, to shame us in the final moments of our life. As you go through the chaos, as you go through the crowd, you begin to realize that this is really the last scene that you will ever see. You begin to wonder things, what, what was my life for? What was the meaning in all of it? As you come out the front city gate, you see a road. And it's a road that leads to the place of your death. So you begin to walk on this road. And as you feel the, your footsteps hit the dirt, 
you begin to realize that there are less and less people out here, and all of a sudden you become lonely for the last time. That chaos gave way to isolation. And you will be forever isolated to the point of death. What do you think about when you walk? Do you try to increase your life? Make a name for yourself? Build a reputation with what you have left? Maybe you reach out and you, you see a bystander walking by and you, you reach out and grab them with one hand and you say, please go, go find my family, my, my friends, my loved ones. Tell them I care for them. Tell, them. tell them I'm sorry for all the things that I did wrong to them. Tell them that I will miss them. Please ask them to forgive my sins, to, to remember me. You continue your journey and your gaze gets ever focused only to what's ahead. What's beside you and what's behind you doesn't matter anymore. And as you approach the end of your journey, you stop and you look up. Someone else has taken your place. Your, <laughs> your petibulum has no place to hang. Even though he deserved no part in your punishment, Jesus went on before you, occupying your spot. And now the critical question, the most important of questions. What will you do? What will you do with this unusable patibulum? Will you... Lay it against the cross of Christ. Wipe your brow and say, oh, I'm glad I got out of that one. Go take up your life again as if it never happened. Or do you choose to pick up your cross, to put it on your back, and to take it with you as a daily reminder, not just of one thing that happened one time, but as a daily reminder of who owns your life now, who has control over your life, your future, who reigns over your past, who forgives everything in between. It is a path of surrender. It's a path of letting go, of recognizing that I'm not the best person to run my life. This will never change. This will never change. This will forever mark you from this moment onward. You are a Christian. Christ follower. That is what I believe it means to carry your cross. To visibly choose to remember. To carry with you both internally so that you can remind yourself and externally so that others around you can see it. That you somehow are this mixture of, of shame and glory. Bearing the shame of the world around you but, but awaiting a glory that is yet to be revealed. 
That somehow you're, although this petibulum, this useless petibulum is ever hanging off your back, that the joy of the Lord that is inside you is uncontainable. What does it look like in this season of life to carry your cross? Brandon and I were talking earlier. It's, it's so hard because with every new season, there comes more things, even, even the best of things, that you have to learn how to give back to God. What does it look like to carry your cross as a husband? To be seen in that way as a wife, a parent, a child, a worker? A student, somebody who has authority over others. What does it look like to be a Christ follower in this way? Sometimes they need to know and sometimes you need to know that this is who you are now. Sometimes you think about carrying your cross for the duration of a long while. I, I anticipate many years that, that are left in my life. And sometimes you have less. Uh, I met a friend a month ago that uh, just wanted uh, to reach out for prayer. And a law family leader passed his number on to me. And this is an encouragement for any of you. If you desire prayer, there are many leaders at this church who desire to pray for you. And we mean it. So I called this man. And his name is Ed. And a matter of fact, uh, Ed's daughter is here tonight. And I, I met her for the first time. Now, Ed, after going seven rounds, is um, what they call terminal. Now, it's not to say that God can't do what he wants to do. Uh, cancer is not holding a thumb over God's plan. But there's this mixture of, of praying for God to take this away, and at the same time, this ever desire to, to say, God, whatever you lead me through, help me to be with Jesus. A couple days ago, I was over at their house, and we were just talking about what it means to carry your cross when you have months, maybe a year. It's changing gears a little bit. 19 of us are leaving in a matter of a couple days to go down to Ecuador. For us, for eight days, carrying your cross means, means serving, getting your hands dirty, going somewhere that we can't touch here means investing in, in a partnership, in a, in, a, in a love for other people because Christ loves us. If you desire, by the way, to pray for us, we're leaving on Monday, and if you could pray for our team for unity, for humility, and for worship, that's a glorifying trip to God. At the end of the day, we have to all ask ourselves, what does it look like? What does it look like to carry our cross and if you haven't figured out today, then tomorrow, you have to do it again. Every time there's an opportunity, when you're tempted to set the petibulum back on the ground, you have to choose to pick it back up for the sake of remembering how much he loves you. Because brothers and sisters, if, if you take anything from this tonight, know this. That God loves you and me so much.
I said before, this led me to pray a prayer that has helped me on a daily basis for, for weeks now. If, Andrew, if you could put this up. What would happen in your life if you prayed this prayer? As often as you thought about it, God, help me to give up control. Help me to follow Jesus today. And some of you may be saying, well, I am following Jesus today. I came to church tonight. Come on, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm here. And I want to encourage you to look in your heart and to ask yourself, am I following Jesus on my terms or will I submit control and go his way? Whatever that means today. And it may mean something different tomorrow, but today, God, help me to do what you lay before me in this day. Jesus goes on. He says in verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? It's a miraculous exchange. If you seek to hold on control onto your life, you will lose it. If you give up control to the Lord, if you go his way, if you allow yourself to be loved by him in those uncontrollable ways, you will find true life. You will gain true life. One of my favorite heroes in the faith is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And on the last day of his life, as he was in a military confinement, he was leading an impromptu service the first Sunday after Easter, preaching to his fellow prisoners, some believers and some not, over Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. And then two officers knocked on the door moments after they finished praying. And they looked out and they said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. And those three words, come with us, every prisoner in that room knew what it meant. It would mean the gallows. On his way out of that room, on his way to be hung for his faith, Bonhoeffer's last words were, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. (laughs) I find myself so many times in the past few weeks asking myself, how could I have forgotten this? It was so clear in the first few hours that I believed this was exactly what I signed up for. Lose everything and gain everything in Christ. I, I no longer have control over my, my money, my possessions, my future, my, myself. This is all Jesus is now. And somehow over time, it became so easy to forget that. Last question is this. Is following Jesus worth more than the whole world? This is, this is what comes back to us every day. And the whole world may mean something different for you each day. Sometimes following Jesus may need to be more than, than making your children your entire world. Following Jesus needs uh, to be worth more than your career or how much money you have in your bank account. Following Jesus has to mean more than whether or not you get that boyfriend to marry you one day or... Girlfriend, not like the guy in the picture earlier, okay? <laughs> Is following Jesus worth more than go away? But I will tell you this, to possess something so great like a family, 
and to not try to eke every piece of control out of them like a wet rag, to mold them into my image. If I give up control, and along with Sarah, if we give our boys to the Lord and say, these, we get to take care of them, but these boys are yours. They were always yours. Then somehow, just maybe, one day they'll believe, they'll understand so much stronger than I do. But we will ruin them if we seek to gain everything in the here and now. What have you gained that is costing you true life? What have you been seeking to acquire to, to pull in something that's been a carrot at the end of a stick that you've been chasing after for years that, that in seeking to gain it, you've actually lost yourself completely? You've lost your soul. Jesus gives you and me a better way. He ends with this in verse 38. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This wonderful exchange comes back up, shame and glory. And here's the way it works. If you go for glory now, you find shame later. If you are willing to embrace and to take on whatever shame comes at you for the sake of Christ because you bear his name, Glory awaits. Even as I mentioned Ed earlier, he's, he's told me this a handful of times, and it's been super encouraging. Um, he's probably told it to you, Jess, where he said, I, on that last day, when Jesus comes back, that great last battle of Armageddon, I want to be there with Jesus. I want to be there with a sword and a shield. And, th- and then he says, I'll carry a broom if I have to, but I want to be there with Jesus, Okay. That's a piece of what it looks like to exchange shame for glory, to exchange cancer for glory, to exchange death for glory. Jesus will win one way or another. I want to be by Jesus' side too. In Matthew 28, some of Jesus' final words read like this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This church body is absolutely blessed to have handfuls of men and women who are either currently or seeking to be international missionaries, who are seeking to go to places like China, the Philippines, Ecuador, We are unbelievably blessed to to have people in our midst who are willing to say, like Rebecca, who are willing to say, like Abraham, I will go. But we believe also at this church that to disciple the nations begins right here. That we don't want to go try to change somebody else um, in a foreign land if we're not doing this here, if we're not embracing the call, the Great Commission, in our own backyard and our neighborhoods. So we have amazing things in place. We have amazing modules that sit back there by the joy box every week. Thank you for not saying the the sound that that we make. Amazing resources. And there's thousands of amazing resources out there that teach you what scripture is, that talk about spiritual fruit, what it means to live a life for Jesus. But I will promise you this, 
that discipleship is empty if it lacks this attitude, this desire to, to deny myself, to give up control, and to carry my cross, to visibly be seen as a Christ follower, and sometimes to have to remind myself as much as anybody else that this is who you are, this lifestyle of self-giving control of my life. This is at the heart of discipleship. Countless people have been burned by men and women who know all the right answers from a book, but don't know what it means to submit to Jesus. We desire to put it in the right order. So at this church, we began four years ago to encourage men and women to to ask our covenant members of our church body who have agreed to disciple one another, where, where more mature believers come alongside lesser mature believers for a season in a very official way to teach them about Scripture, to walk through the Bible, to live life on life together, to say this is what it looks like to live as a Christian. And by the way, part of that is this is what it looks like to repent as a Christian because I mess up all the time. This is what that looks like. This is what we've committed to. And I, I, I want to encourage you by saying that it's a very hard road. It's a very hard thing to commit to as a church, but that doesn't mean that it's not the right thing. We will not give up on that. I've seen hundreds of lives changed because people have gone alongside them and say, I will walk with you, with Jesus. That is our opportunity. But lest we get too fixed on our own efforts or on how awesome we can be at times, I want to remind you that this is why we have hope. In Hebrews 12, it reads like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. My friends, Jesus is glorious. Jesus deserves all of our praise. He is our king. He is our hope. God, help us to follow him, to go his way. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight. I ask that you would give us your spirit to to guide us on your way. We're sorry for all the ways that we've changed the image of Jesus to, to... to fit some lifestyle that we want to have. And I'm praying for the freedom to give up control, to give up control of our future, to, to, to work hard, but to give up control of our families, of, of every step of our lives, Father, that we're so quickly to grasp hold of tighter. Help us to trust you tonight by being willing to take on whatever it takes, whatever comes our way, to follow Christ. We thank you most of all, Father, for the work of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being so faithful, for submitting your own will to the will of the Father that you embrace the cross, knowing where it would lead for us. Thank you so much for your love.